This is Audio Tractor, discussions around music and creativity. I'm Alan Strickland. Evan Redwine is our guest today. He's a young, energetic engineer and a producer who's keeping busy and turning out good music in the Nashville scene. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. In this series of podcasts, I've talked with people who've been in the music business for 40 years and have Grammy Awards, fun stories, and hit records. I'm curious if any of those records made in Nashville over the last 40 years have influenced you. Absolutely. Some of my earliest memories of music were listening to Tim McGraw and Faith Hill's records in the late 90s, particularly Tim McGraw and I think his record, A Place in the Sun. Some of the musicianship on those tracks, I still go back and listen to those records. Because for me, at least in my mind, obviously I wasn't in the studio then, but that was kind of the one of the golden eras of Nashville before digital platforms of listening to music and when budgets were still big. And I can hear it in some of those records. And actually, Stephen Curtis's records from the same era, late 90s, early 2000s, the Tim McGraw stuff, the Stephen Curtis Chapman stuff, you hear brilliance in every five seconds. Like, no moment is unconsidered. To me, it sounds like every minute of a record costs $10,000. You know, like, it's it's amazing, especially the stuff Brown Bannister did with Stephen Curtis. I just don't hear music made that ornately anymore. And they're great songs. Like, people are still writing great songs, but you have this great song with this amazing band and obviously incredible engineering and mixing and then orchestras and all these orchestrations that, you know, lead into moments and key changes and... and it's just, there's so much brilliance in some of that late 90s Nashville recording for me. And you think the budget was one of the main facilitators of that creativity? I I do. <laughs> I mean, obviously, the, the talent on those albums, just like today, just like any point, is, is it. But So they had the money to get a lot of really talented people in the room at the same time. And just the fact that they have an orchestra on every song, like a flawless orchestra. They had the ability to make every moment exactly what they wanted it to be. And I think the budget probably played a big part in that. So on today's smaller budgets, is there a way that you bring some of what you learned from those records to your process? I would say what I've learned from listening to those records is make sure that the message or the story that the song is trying to tell is not interrupted or not inhibited or not cluttered. For me, what makes a great song still is lyric and melody. You don't need a huge budget. Like the huge budget is what makes an awe-inspiring record to me a lot of times. You have this ability to serve the song with less limitations for sure. But there are still great records that are very simple where the songs just grab you and you can't you can't let go. I remember the introduction of compact discs and was sure and I'm asking you this because you're, you're young. You just turned 30, and in my, my book, that's young. But I remember the introduction of the compact disc and was sure it would be the format that would endure all ages. Huh. Uh, clearly, it hasn't. Uh, do you remember CDs, and did you ever buy one? Oh, I bought tons of CDs. When I started you know, listening to and buying music, I mean, even as a kid, I think when I was really, really young, cassettes were still a thing, but late 90s, early 2000s, I remember CDs being the thing. And I still have a ton of CDs at my house. Up until two or three years ago, I was buying them on a regular basis just because I loved having the credits and listening to something more than an MP3 that I could stream. 
And lately it's been more Spotify just because of the convenience. But if there's still a, a record I'm really passionate about, I'll go out and buy it. But the experience of holding the, the booklet and reading who did what and following yeah. along with the lyrics, you're one of the people that does that. Yeah, still, to, okay. to a degree, yeah. Because I don't think there's many many folks that do that that much anymore, to actually consume an album as an album rather than just buying the single. Yeah, yeah. So when people come to you to work uh, with you, are they making albums or EPs or singles? Or, or what is it exactly that you do as a young Nashville producer and engineer? Yeah, generally records, EPs, and, and, and albums. I do a few single things here and there, but normally... In my experience, they've, those have come in the context of a, you know a broader project, where you know we'll be planning five or ten songs, and then obviously the single will be one of those. But. So your dad helped you build your studio here in Nashville, yeah. And so that would sort of let me know that there is some family support for you behind your career choice. Absolutely, yeah. How did that unfold? Well, I mean, you know, my parents were always like, "Find what you love and and do it." And they never put pressure on me to go in any certain direction. And, um, and fortunately, you know, I found music and I loved it and I've worked hard at it. So, um, I think because I worked hard at it, it was, even though maybe it was a less traditional career, they were really happy to support me in it, which was huge. So what were some of the challenges you faced early on? For instance, when you, when you came to Nashville, what was that like? Maybe this isn't what you were expecting, but one of the challenges I faced, I actually came to Belmont. When I moved to Nashville, I, I came to go to Belmont. And I was in the guitar program, but I got tendonitis my first year and had to stop playing guitar for a while. So I came wanting to be a guitar player. I switched from the music performance program to the music business program so I could take some time off guitar. And, you know, that was a pretty painful experience having to shift because I, you know, I played guitar for years and I loved it and I hadn't tried any recording or anything else. But my senior year, I had some recording classes and I was like, you know what, this seems like this could be really fun. I'm going to like dive into these classes and see what comes of it. And I just really enjoyed it. And my last semester, I got an internship with this guy, Andrew Osenga. You probably know Andrew. Mm -hmm. And, um... He was incredibly encouraging to me, really believed in me, and just made me want to do it more and more. And I got a little bit of recording equipment, like my own interface and a few mics. And that last semester, I just, I recorded everyone I could, even just in my apartment. You know, that's kind of how it all started. But the, there was definitely a lot of challenge for a couple of years and just knowing I couldn't play and thinking I'm here to do music, but I don't know what else in music I might love apart from playing guitar. You never threw your hands up and said, you know what, I'm going to become an accountant. No, no, I didn't. Because I was always hopeful either my arm would heal, which it, it has pretty much. You know, I can play pretty much as I want to these days. And that is a big part of my work still, which is really, really cool that that's come back. But um, that was a big challenge. That was a, kind of honestly like a pretty dark, challenging 18 months. Well, I think it's great that even though there was a sense of loss, it didn't stop you. Yeah, when someone comes to you and says, I'm a recording artist and I want to work with you, how do you choose whether or not that's going to be a good fit? Do you ever turn anyone down going, you know, I just don't think this is going to work? I usually don't. <laughs> Maybe because, you know, I'm still younger and I'm still really thankful for the work anytime a project comes. There have been, I guess my only caveat to that is I have had a few experiences at this point where looking back on those early coffee conversations with these artists an artist who's maybe a little more difficult to work with that I couldn't see at the time. And then I'd get in a project that was just a slog, you know, trying to find what would make them happy and realizing 
they're not even sure what would make them happy. They're trying to figure it out and I'm trying to chase it down, but their opinion is always changing. So it's kind of impossible. And so I've had two or three of those. I'm still really thankful for those experiences and I've learned a ton, but I I will say, I think I've been really fortunate for the most part. The artists I've worked with have been really cool people. How do you keep that creative process moving forward? How do you keep the spark happening so it doesn't just become, oh, here I am staring at Pro Tools again? That's a great question. So kind of my vision for producing is I want every record I make to sound like that artist. And I don't want people to listen to, say, half a dozen records I've produced and think, oh, I can hear that Evan Redwine produced those. This is Evan's bag of tricks. Yes. I want it to be like, whoa, that sounds like that artist's mind or that artist's heart or their personality. The best collaborations with an artist are when we both really admire each other's visions and we both want each other to bring everything we can to the table. But I do see my role as trying to be like, okay, what do you want from this? Give me some records you love. Let's glean from those. Let's go to the right room to track this. Let's get the right players. And if I have to change it up every project, try to take a fresh approach for each project. I I have certain rooms that I love working in and all that, but I really do try to be mindful of what does this project need? And if I approach recording it, or approach who's playing on it in a completely different way, it is from the beginning going to take on its own personality that's hopefully the personality of that artist. So I'd say listening to the artist and really letting their vision drive things keeps it fresh for me because that makes every record different. But that's I'd say that's the main idea is really letting the artist's vision drive and really trying to be a facilitator of their vision as opposed to let me take your songs and put my vision on them. Because if I did that, it would be um, the Evan recipe. Yes. And it would feel like I'm just in Pro Tools every day because like, oh, this is the same thing I did last week or last month, you know? Well, if I would come at this a different way and say, gosh, Evan, you know, you, you should really have this template and you should just stick with it because we know there are people that do that. So you're creating a lot of extra work for yourself. Why? Because I think that will allow me to make records that endure yeah, clearly, it's a loaded fresh. question. I just wanted to yeah, see yeah. what you say. Yeah, I don't, I don't, it doesn't feel like I'm creating a lot of extra work for myself because a lot of that work, I mean, it's, it's in the planning phases of like, oh, we're going to go here and hire these people. And once you have that plan in place and you start stepping forward, it doesn't necessarily feel in some ways workload-wise different than any other project. So part of your process is to make sure that your process is fresh. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So this is going to sound like a late night uh, campfire question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Where do you see yourself in 10 years? And do you like s'mores? (laughs) (laughs) I do like s'mores. Uh, In 10 years, honestly, I see myself producing label projects and having a Grammy or two in a box. I I don't know if I want to be, I don't know if I want to keep them and show them off in my studio, but I'd love to have them and know that I earned them. I do know people who have earned them and then sort of put them in a box yeah. and go, I don't like looking at that much because it sort of causes a, a, a little bit of anxiety and pressure for the future. It's like, well, how many more of them am I going to get? Well, yeah. how many more do you need or was one enough? You yeah. Know? But I think it's very possible to be there in 10 years. And yeah, that's, that's, cool. that's my goal. That's great. I do take to heart the advice of you're much more likely to succeed in your goals if you write them down. I, I'm not going to beat myself up if that doesn't happen. But I know having written it down and reading that and keeping that in my mind on a regular basis is going to make it far more likely to happen than if I didn't. 
Now, is that like a, a note on your refrigerator that you see daily, or is that something you just sort of wrote down and shoved in a drawer? Or something, something I wrote down in my journal, which I you know open on a weekly basis, and yeah. So if you win a Grammy Award, what would that represent? Look at the recognition I've received, or is this sort of a, I did something that was widely accepted. I did something really good, and I have something mm. physical to show for it. So if you win a Grammy, is it like approval, or is it proof, or is it just a milestone that you've set? Am I overthinking this for you? No, <laughs> but you're, I'm really getting in my head, and I'm, I'm, try, I'm discerning between my healthy and unhealthy motives. Because I'm sure, honestly... Life is a mixture of those, buddy. Get yeah, used to it. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I mean, and maybe the Grammy's just like the cultural, obvious milestone of it, you know. Mm. I'm sure part of it is thinking, oh, if I get this, I can relax now. Like, I'm, I've am i proven myself to myself. So it's the milestone. Yeah. Gotcha. And, and hearing myself say that out loud, it's like, okay, let's take a look at some motivations and, and see what <laughs> you really want out of life, you know. But if I'm being honest, I think that's what it is. I think there's so many uh, so many people who just want to talk about microphones or talk about the mix or what monitors do you use. But to me, the thing that's more fundamental, and I love gear, but the thing that is much more fundamental is the process of creativity and music and how it plays in your life. And you've talked about it was part of growing up. Your dad helped you. So it's, it's basically foundational in your life, even in your family. What is music to you? Excitement, energy, and joy. When I'm listening to music I love, or when I'm picking up my guitar and playing music I love, and I'm getting lost in it, or I'm just honestly singing out loud in my kitchen while cooking dinner listening to it, those are the moments in life to me where I I honestly feel happiest. You know, I'm tapping into why I'm here. Like, I'm here to experience joy, and music gives me a lot of that. And it makes me deeply happy and joyful to create it in a way, in a form that people haven't quite heard before, to be contributing to that bed of art that brings me joy, as opposed to just taking from it, hmm. I think is is really beautiful. And it's, yeah, to know that this has brought me joy, and I've been gifted with the ability to make it, like, that's really exciting. And it's, it's interesting to me, too, because I'm a very regiment and detail-minded guy. I in my mind, I'm not the visionary producer who always just has these brilliant musical ideas flowing out of his mind. I'm a guy who gets tasked to make a record, and I just work really hard at it till it's as good as I know how to make it. I just love that I'm able to do it for a living. And maybe in my mid-20s, early 20s, it was a little more about, this is a hard thing to do. I enjoy it, but it's a hard thing to do, and I kind of want to prove that I can do it. And now it's a little more man, this is a beautiful thing to do, and I'm really thankful I'm doing it. And um, it's cool that creativity has become such a part of my life when my mind, I have a mind that might inherently do really well at accounting or management or something like that. Well, that sounds like a really healthy progression through the 20s of this is hard, but I really want to do it. And then you're comfortable and you're like, wow, I'm so thankful that I can do that. That sounds like a logical and healthy progression. Hopefully, thank you. (laughs) So what's the greatest obstacle in getting your ideas or the music in your head recorded so others can hear it? I would say the pressure that either I or that either myself or the artist puts on me to make something great. Let me give an example. I had a song I produced recently for an artist from out of town. I knew it was going to be good, but I also had the impression this artist would just kind of be happy with whatever I did. 
everything I did on that song, I did it from a place of freedom. I was not worried about whether this idea was going to work or not. You know, I took time to make sure the parts were right and stuff, but I just, essentially I had fun with it. It's one of my favorite things I've produced. The feel and the groove of the track are so good. And it's, I think it's exactly what it needed to be. And I listened back to it, you know, after mastering and and the whole process was finished. And I was like, I did not expect this to be one of those things that I'd be like, man, I'm so proud of that. But I was, this was just about a month ago. And I remember thinking, how can I bring that freedom and that ease and that lack of pressure onto projects where I would normally put more pressure on myself? Because I think I do, I can do good work in both situations, but I hear how the song where I put less pressure on myself and just enjoyed making it and kind of rocked out, you know, I can hear the freedom and the joy in that song. And I can hear that the energy is exactly what it was supposed to be. Do you ever wake up at two o'clock in the morning with an idea? Is that part of the creative process for you is insomnia and jotting things down at your kitchen table at 3 a.m.? Not at all. <laughs> Not Damn at all. it, man. You need to be more unhealthy. Yeah, I, th- I, think, I think that has happened once or twice to me when I'm in the middle of a, a project that I'm putting a lot of pressure on myself on. I don't know if it's two in the morning, but maybe it's more like five or six in the morning. Like I just wake up a little early with something That's on worse, my mind. Yeah. Oh, man. I hear this part. I'm going to go out and lay it down now. Oh, so like five o'clock in the morning, you'd fire up the studio and yeah. go. Yeah, I mean, my studio, my overdub space is 50 feet behind my house. So that <laughs> makes it convenient. But that's normally when I'm really already in a project that I'm, you know, have a song that I'm really trying to wrestle and I really care about. But normally, no, I'm very much, uh, you know, like I, I have friends and this is legitimate, you know, everybody's different. But, you know, oh, I only get, cre- I'm really only creative after like 8 p.m. or whatever. I'm like, good for you. (laughs) I've never even thought about it in terms like that. I think my personality is more that this is when I need to be creative. So this is when I'm going to be creative. Like, you know, I want to work nine to six. So I'm going to go in there and be creative, you know? (laughs) So you're taking actually a very logical approach to creativity. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to make sure those are the hours that I'm putting that energy out. And I just trust that the the creativity will come by doing that on a consistent basis. I had a friend who uh, was an author, and I'd ask him, what do, you, what do you do when the creativity doesn't happen? He said, I, I sit at my computer from 9 to 5, Yeah. and if I don't have any ideas, I just start typing, and it doesn't matter what it is. And eventually something will flow, Yeah. and it sounds like you do the same thing. You're like, okay, 9 o'clock in the morning, let's go do this. Yes, and I got that from Stephen Pressfield. He's an author. He has a book called The War of Art. Give me a brief synopsis of the book. Here are all the ways that resistance to creativity or productivity happen in your life. And here's how to overcome resistance. Resistance, in this book, resistance is the enemy. And it's anything that keeps you from accomplishing your goals or being creative. And, you know, his general, or at least the initial approach to that is the consistency. It doesn't matter if it's three hours a day, if it's eight hours a day, you have your time when you sit down. And you go and you you put out your creative effort. And whether it bears fruit or not, that's okay. You put in your time. You sat down and did it, and you you do it again the next day. And that's the best way to long-term know that you will have creative efforts you're proud of. So that brings structure to something that most people think is a little more ethereal and whimsical. Exactly. Yes. 
which in, sounds like it makes creativity more reliable on a daily basis for you. For me, yeah, absolutely. Tell me the name of the book again. The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. Okay, I'm definitely going to have to get that. Yeah. I could amazing. use more structure, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's huge. I should probably read it again. You know, it's, it's, it's definitely one of those books you could read every five years or so. So we can talk about creativity and structure and how you do this on a daily basis. And a moment ago, I thought it was really interesting. You said it doesn't matter if it bears fruit or not. But obviously, it bears fruit. You're making a living being a recording engineer and a producer. What are some of the things you've done that you're proud of or you would point to people who hear this podcast and say, go listen to this. This was cool. This is some of my stuff that I'm really proud of. Yeah. I've produced a couple EPs for a female songwriter named Ellie Turner. And her voice and her writing are just so effortlessly great all the time. Half the tracks I've produced for her, the final vocal we ended up using was her first or second pass she sang during pre-production when we were just demoing the song because she's that good. And once we'd start doing more vocal takes, she'd be thinking about it more. An example of what we were just talking about, she'd be in more in her head about it. And not that she didn't sound amazing, but the emotion of those earlier takes was so there and her vocal is so flawless that it was just already a great take. And when you when you have an artist that you can do that with, it's really a joy. And just amazing songwriting. I have mixed a few tracks for an artist named Jordy Cersei that my buddy Lucas Morton produces. He has an EP, I believe it's called Dark in the City. I mixed most of that. I've produced a couple the last couple records for a band called the Arcadian Wild that are more in the bluegrass realm. So their latest EP is Principium, and then an album before that is Finch in the Pantry, and I recorded and mixed both of those. And I just love, I love the simplicity of four or five people playing a song, you know, on acoustic instruments. And that is so fun to engineer and see how how rich I can make things, because those tracks, there's no way they're going to be cluttered, right? Um, and so that's really fun. A moment ago you talked about uh, using earlier takes or even something from pre-production. Are you a believer in pre-production? Oh, absolutely. I do more of it now than, say, I did five years ago. I used to be, okay, we'll just find our key, our tempo, lay down, a scratch acoustic and a scratch vocal, and then we'll we'll really start thinking about the tracks, what the track's going to be when the players start playing along to that. Now my approach is more, let's lay down that acoustic and that vocal, but also take a day, if we can, like a day with each song, to start laying down ideas. We have more of what you might call a demo of the song that's got some energy to it before we go into a tracking room with a band so that they can hear the band can hear that and be like, oh, yeah, I, I know where you want to take this song. And, and that normally gives the players a better idea of how they can serve the song. But also within that, I do think it's important to keep an open mind. And if I get in the room with the band and everyone's like, actually, hey, mute those couple of parts or... What if we slowed this down a couple BPM and made the piano the foundation instead of an acoustic guitar? You know, it's important to keep an open mind, but I I like going into those tracking scenarios where the artist and I have confidence of a direction the song could go in. So the pre-production is almost making a demo. Yes. It's That's very cool. Becoming more and more that for me. Yeah. A moment ago you talked about using just the second take from pre-production that wound up on the master. Yes. Do you find that those earlier takes are going to be a little more filled with energy and spark than after you've been beating a vocalist for five hours trying to get <laughs> the perfect take? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. A lot of those later takes, they can sound 
technically good, but the earlier takes, especially when when you have a good vocalist, all the takes are technically gonna be good, or at least very close. But just the emotion they tend to feel when they don't think any pressure is on them, like oh this is pre-production, it doesn't doesn't quote unquote matter if I sing well, right? They're gonna sing their best because they're not overthinking anything. They're just enjoying themselves usually in those moments. And that's when the best performances come out, in my experience. So you keep everything in case you need to reach back for it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Very much so. So if there's a singer-songwriter who's considering sort of going to the next level and seeking to work with a producer, what advice would you give them? Find someone who listens to you and is, is trying to make your agenda or your vision come to life. And that can be tough to do because sometimes you don't really know that until you get in the process with someone is whether or not they're really listening to you or whether they're really just wanting to make their own EP with your lyrics. <laughs> gotcha. You know, that would be my number one piece of advice. When someone seeks you out, what do you want them to bring to you? Do you want them to bring completed songs or roughs or demos? How, how can you know if you sit down to have a cup of coffee with someone that you could work with them or that you'd be on the same page? The first thing for me is just how do our personalities connect? If we're if we're having a great conversation and having fun talking about, oh, yeah, I love that record. I'm so glad you brought that up. And we're just connecting and enjoying learning about each other's, you know, musical histories and what gets us excited musically. And I could just tell I'd be friends with this person. That's kind of that's the foundation for me. Beyond that, you know, if someone wants to do five songs and in my experience, more often than not, someone's like, I want to do five songs. I have five, maybe seven or eight I'd consider. You know, I will say, send me some demos and we'll talk about which ones we want to do. Hey, uh, next meeting, come to my studio, play me your songs. Because sometimes I just want to hear you play them and sing them in the room, even as opposed to listening to a voice memo, you know. When you say voice memo, you mean something they just recorded on their phone? Yes. Okay. Yeah. But you're also saying this is largely personal. Yeah, absolutely. And it has to be for the creativity to be in place. Yes. If you're mismatched, it's just not going to work. Yeah. Perfect. So it sounds more like dating than I thought. Yes. <laughs> I guess it is a lot like dating. Yeah. yeah, it is. Evan, thank you for your time. I certainly appreciate you taking time out to come and talk today. Yeah. Thanks again for having me. You've been listening to Audio Tractor, discussions around music and creativity. Thanks to Paul Eckberg for the use of his studio and Clark Slicer for his audio direction. You can find more information on Evan Redwine at evanredwine.com. I'm Alan Strickland. Thank you for listening.